no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Once again, joined by my great friend Ralph. And here we are. To discuss whatever, whatever. <laughs> the script's getting looser and looser. Well, the, yeah. Uh, well, also partly because the, 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 the world of media that we are uh, watching here at in apocalyptic times is going through some pretty big transitions, right? So we're, you know, we're, we're finding ourselves uh, suffering from the expense of a million cuts as it were. Yeah. Where instead of uh, handing a cable company a big pile of money every month, we're handing out little bits and pieces to lots of different little parts of the organization. Here's, I, so I've been following um, this a little bit closer Speaking of cable companies, I am under the assumption that when 5G comes out, mm-hmm. it is supposedly, I don't i don't know enough, to, I mean, just enough to be dangerous, supposedly fast enough where we could feasibly rid ourselves of cable internet and use the speed of 5G and feel good about it for our house. Hmm. Now, the issue is access to 5g first and then also devices that will support it but i'm intrigued right i i am too and i'm i i think that there are i i think that there is something going under the name 5g that isn't really 5g i've heard yeah and then there's you know the 5g itself the fifth generation which you know it's sort of like talking about a uh you know a coming up with a name for a generation of people like Gen Z right. or Gen Z minus or right. something like that. So, um, well, yeah. we're going to, we're going we're gonna to really struggle to name the generation after generation Z, right? right. Yes. <laughs> Where do we go from here? Generation Omega. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, I mean, that's a big burden to carry. Generation Z already right. feels a little, you know, it's, it's the appropriate generation for our podcast. Yes. The last one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, the last one's going to be around. Well, we simply can't continue to exist because we don't have the names for it. Right. So, but, you know, but now the the other thing that to me is, of course, the whole notion of quantum computing, right? Which yeah. is sort of out 5G's 5G and apparently is so powerful that passwords will not be a thing because it, it will be able to figure out passwords basically more quickly than we can think them up. Huh. So, um, and, and, and this is all, you know, of course it all sounds like a conspiracy theory until it's a real thing, but I'm always very interested and, in, and, uh, to see how this happens because the implications of it are, are huge. They're enormous. Yeah. Even if it doesn't, you know, what I think, what I think is interesting about it is how much of, um, so in my head, I always break it into just to make the terminology clear legacy media, which was all the stuff that existed before the digital revolution, whatever that is, the internet, whatever. 
and then all the stuff after, right? right. So there's legacy and then digital. And that the, the digital still actually is a lot of legacy stuff. I mean, for for you, if you don't think about it really hard, walking into a movie theater and sitting down and totally. watching something is kind of exactly like it was, you know, 50 years ago. Except the ticket price is four times. The right. Amount. The ticket price is higher. The The popcorn is worse for you. And uh, the projection is digital, which yeah. you know, most which people. Which is pretty cool. It can be cool. It can be really annoying for. I don't know if you, yes. do you have any fanatics who are film grain. They're, they're like film grain addicts. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I had never thought about that. I mean, yeah. but as a, uh, I mean, as a guy of a lover of vinyl, I can understand why yeah. someone would, would do that. Right. I was. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't think I've told this story, but I always forget what stories I've told you or not. Um, but I watched uh, Wonder Woman uh-huh. on a plane. Yeah. And then I realized I had just taken a movie that had like, a, I don't know, $150 million budget. <laughs> and I had watched it with like half a glare yeah. and listened to it through headphones that the stewardess had given me. You uh-huh. know? And I felt so terrible doing that. And I assume what you're talking about is the opposite of, of what I had done there. It, well, it can be. It's sort of like up to, you know, the people who are really fanatical, sort of like the vinyl thing, right? Mm-hmm. And this goes again. So I don't know if I've told this story before, but back when I worked in a record store a million years ago, and it was the beginning of the transition from vinyl to CDs, and people would, the, the, the classical music fans would come through, and they hated digital. They thought the digital mm-hmm. recording, that CDs, that it was all very harsh and very sharp and unlistenable because it missed all the warmth and, and yeah. the tonalities of of a, an analog form. But, you know. Yeah. Well, I've thought about this, too, and maybe you know more of this because <clears throat> I just I don't know enough about filmmaking. But my understanding is like the technology that's in cameras now, like, for instance, the red cameras, mm-hmm. is that you can essentially, I mean, you shoot something, but then it has such a high resolution that if you if you want to re, uh, basically move where the camera is, like move it in, you can do so and sort of recrop it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you can do so much because the resolution's so high now. Right. It, yeah. just, it sounds to me like directing a movie has so many more variables to it. The job mm-hmm. seems so hard because you have so many choices to what you inevitably can do, right? Yeah. The, like the like the limitations don't seem to exist in the same way. The limitations are budgets and right. Well, there's. I mean, you're always playing with different sets of of you know things that'll constrain what you can do, what you can afford to do, how much money is going to be invested, and in what audience you're expecting to produce it for, and everything like that. But, you know, there's so much of it that's built around conventions, right? Whatever you get used to. Right. Um, I was just telling uh, one of my classes this week, you're all sitting there, including me, thinking we all know what dinosaurs look like and we don't. But it's because of the quality level that we have this conventional idea of what they look like. And, you know, most of the science has been showing that they actually looked kind of weird because they did look kind of like scary T-Rexes, but with like weird feathers sticking out (laughs) in different places. So, you know, uh, there are conventions about how acting works. There are conventions about how how things look when they explode, right? 
Um, and it did hit this point historically where people started, when they saw something in real life, would say, that looks like a movie, right? That mm. was the, the, the people who were emotionally disconnected from the 9-11 uh, incidents were, you know, they were saying it looked like a movie, and they didn't mean that in a trivial way. They just meant that they, that sort of it hit a point where it was so far outside of their normal experience that it became part of, you know, kind of the the media, the spectacular media environment that we're mm. all in. So I, I think that's a, and and so that may be something where the the, the level of quality um, is gives us some some flexibility, but there's always going to be other kinds of constraints. Yeah, right. There's always going to be ideas of how storytelling is supposed to work, of you know what makes a what makes certain characters likable and unlikable, and you know so the trick I think for most of us is we need to pay attention to those conventions. Yeah. And, you know, the easiest way to do that is to just take a look at a piece of media that's so far away from you, either in space or time, and then say, well, for its time, this was conventional, right? This is right. this is how it looked then. And then try to kind of see how you got from a set of conventions that were acceptable at one particular historical point and how much different they are now. Right. And part of that judgment is whether the thing that you're looking at, you, that you're comparing is, you know, within the conventional bounds of the world you're living in. Does Are you telling me there was a time where I could go to a movie theater and see a movie that wasn't about superheroes? You could. There was a time when there were no. Well, actually, the at that time, there would have been serials about superheroes. So basically, at the beginning of the film, right before the film, uh, after newsreels, then you would get, you know, sort of like an episode of a serial. And the serials were usually 12 to 15 parts, and you'd see 10-minute chunks of them, and they were built around these, you know, cliffhanger setups, and there were Superman serials and Batman's, lots of, lots of different kinds, lots of serials featuring Bela Lugosi fighting, like, atomic robots and things yeah. like that, yeah. So that was kind of where the superhero stuff, and then you get to the, to the sort of the meteor uh, films that were kind of about, you know, the rest of what is now, you know, sort of set aside so we can have more superhero films. I do have a topic. I thought I, I thought I didn't, I didn't have much to bring to the table, but I do have something I wanted to get your opinion on. Okay. Um, so have you heard the recent news of Tumblr? No. <clears throat> What's the news of Tumblr? Tumblr was sold to WordPress. Ah, uh-huh. For like $3 million, which is crazy because, I don't know, I need to have the facts and figures in front of me. But like Tumblr sold to like Yahoo!, for like a hundred million or something like that. Uh huh. You may need to pull up a history of their uh, <laughs> their timeline, and then that got sold to a. And then they got sold to AOL from Yahoo. Uh huh. I mean, talk about like two you know home runs of parent companies right there, Yahoo and AOL. Right. But um, they just got they just got sold to to WordPress for essentially next to nothing, and uh -huh. it, it's really interesting. Um, sort of one. Uh, statesman blogging platform wanting another one that really has a community behind it. Were you ever a huge Tumblr user? I wasn't, but I'm, I mean, my, I'd have to say that in terms of social media, Facebook was sort of like the collector of my attention most of the time. And now Twitter, which I'm, which it's interesting how many people really don't do anything with Twitter. I mean, a lot of people do where we are at a university where our students are supposed to be using it. But what about you? Were you a, uh, a Tumblr person? 
I can't say I ever really got deep into it. I mean, mm-hmm. I certainly had a Tumblr or two at times. And if you think about it, there's a lot of things that Tumblr brought to the table that probably didn't exist until they thought about it, like uh, the reblog, you know, was, I mean, that's essentially the the retweet mm-hmm. was what they, what they created. And it's such a hub for fan fiction and some bad things too, but uh, <laughs> there's always that. Yeah. The unanticipated consequences right. that, that we're still, that we live inside of when we get exposed to all these things. So, yeah. But that's interesting. It's a, it's, it's fun to see blogging still be mm-hmm. a thing Yeah, like to, to talk about and be interesting. And the other Yahoo end, bought Tumblr for 1.1 billion oh. in 2013. <laughs> WordPress just bought it for 3 million. That's oh crazy. my gosh! Yeah, holy cow! Yeah, yeah, that's that's um, that's astounding. I, I have I have no idea how to get my head around that because these yeah I mean some of these things are values that are just really hard to kind of you know instrumentalize anyway. Well, when you when you're making the bullet points of why Yahoo isn't what it was, right? That's I mean you know like yeah. they they made some really poor decisions on acquisitions. Yeah, yeah. That and that brings me back to I think we did talk about this once before the that Bruce Sterling thing where he had for a little while the the Dead Media Project. David, we ever talk about this? So he had I I don't even know if it still exists or if it's still a thing, but what he was trying to do was to collect together information about sort of like all of the media that were steps towards something else. Oh, that's interesting. So, um, so which would include a lot of these things that, you know, kind yeah. of came and went. Um, but it was, what was interesting at the time was a lot of it was um, sort of like the instrumental steps on how do you get to film, for example, because right. there were lots of attempts to try things that didn't really take off in the same way. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, it, it still exists online and there's still a list of, um, but it's really not, it's really not in existence anymore. But I thought what was interesting about it is there are so many, you know, it's kind of like science classes where you reproduce all of the successful experiments. Like if you think about technological history, there's all the media and forms that Right. fell away at the time yeah. that are probably in people's garages and attics and big boxes <laughs> like you know digital audio discs vhs tapes and and all these sorts of things i was in um <clears throat> i went to uh stanford for a conference one time and then i went to like a computer history museum and i saw like douglas engelbart's prototype for the first mouse yeah. You know, and, and you think about like what would what would computers look like if we didn't have point and click? Right. You know? Yeah. It's it's funny also when you transition between different pieces of the interface, um, how your 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 body learns. Yeah. I've thought this was like the most fascinating thing about like driving a manual transmission car. Like it's really, if you're, if you're not used to, when you first learn it, it's really wonky to get all the parts of your body to do it at the same time. And then there's kind of this learning that happens where all of a sudden you realize you're not thinking about it anymore. You're just doing it right. Your body's just going through the motions and you're able to get the car up to speed. And then you go, wow, how did I do that? That was a really complex sequence of things that at one point was daunting and is now like really kind of simple. And, you know, there's a lot of, I think, the activity we do as we interface with our machines that becomes that sort of like the unconscious hit this button, hit this button type in the password. And it's like watching somebody else do something on their computer, you Mm -hmm. know, and it can 
you can either be like, wow, that's amazing how fast they just did that. Mm-hmm. Or it can frustrate the crap out of you, you know, depending <laughs> yeah. on who they are and, and what their level is. Yeah. There, there was a, I don't know. Did you ever see the film Brainstorm? No. So Brainstorm, gosh, I think that was what, like 1984 or something like that. It was a Douglas Trumbull film. And Douglas Trumbull was really interesting because part of what he was trying to figure out, he, he'd been working with... Um, uh, what was the name of the company? Uh, Go Motion. He was trying to do, trying to do some of the initial experiments with higher frame rate filming. He was Trumbull had been the special effects director for 2001, a long time ago. So he was like the guy, right? And he actually trained a lot of the people who ended up starting Industrial Light and Magic. And um, so he made this film called Brainstorm that was essentially about um, this a tech company that was basically trying to figure out how you could record somebody's sensory experience and then play it back in somebody else's head. Hmm. So you could, you know, and at the beginning you're saying this is Christopher Walken was in it. It was a, it's actually a really good film, but I remember there were lots cause it was very edgy technology at the time. And, um, and, and there's a sequence where somebody is decoding passwords, right? Showing somebody how to break into something. And it's like, click, 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 click. That's how you get on the front door. Click, 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 click. That's how you get through this. Click, click. And that's how you're in, hmm. right? And so it was like presented as if it was this really simple sequence of things, which we all know now because of the way our information can be hacked is kind of how it works, yeah. you know? It's like that stuff just kind of like bandies about. So, um, yeah, so where, where we go there? Anyway, if you get a chance to see the film, it's a great film. And he had shot, um, there's the film is shot regularly, but then there are sequences in the film where he shot with this accelerated film rate. I think it was like 60 frames a second versus 24, which is standard film speed. And there are these really, it's, it's hard, you know, but all of that is it's sort of like what we were talking about, uh, the quality of images. Yeah. It's, it's hard to make that translate into where we are now. Yeah. Like there's, there really isn't a good way to make a film version of that available. And it's not really even financially worth it. Nobody could really make enough money off of essentially redigitizing brainstorm um, so that you would, you know, have that same experience. So So. back to sort of the original point you were making, or man, I have a question about it. Do you, what's your experience with movie theaters? Do you not like, Watching it in digital does it hurt your head at all? Or? It doesn't. It doesn't for me. I have friends who are very particular yeah. about when they when they go see revivals, they want to see film. Right. And, you know, and again, you know, uh, Tarantino was doing it again with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because he had places that were doing seventy millimeter screenings right. of the film. So, to some people, that you know, that visually makes an enormous amount of difference. And I'm sure it's different. It's just yeah. is that is that difference meaningful? You know, that's that's kind of there the is an experience of like hearing the projector, you know, mm-hmm. the room itself. Yeah, it yeah. is interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's that part of it too. Um, so I was gonna. Can we talk about a film? Do it. Let's I was. Do it. I was. I was going to talk about a film that I had a chance to see, and I wanted to make a strong recommendation to you and anybody listening to take a look at it. And it's a film called The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and I had the opportunity to see it um, this summer at, at a movie theater and. It was um, um, a fantastic film. It's uh, it has a quality, particularly in the first half hour of it or so, where it was flowing in in a way that it was creating motion that was just unbelievably compelling to me. So basically it's about uh, two African-American men who are friends and who have a very interesting, ambiguous, kind of hard to figure out relationship. And that's what a lot of the film is about. And it's about, it's partly about their relationship to their past because they go to a, uh, 
uh, Victorian style house in San Francisco, which one of the two men, you know, his grandfather built it as far as he knows. And the people who are living in it now aren't taking care of it. So he just like shows up at their house and does stuff. He starts working on it, painting things on the outside. And um, and this is just all the kind of the beginning setup of the film. But the whole first sequence, so one of these two main characters is on a skateboard constantly. And the other one, who is this really talented writer and artist, kind of runs with him. So there's this flow, you know, and San Francisco is very hilly, very right. beautiful. Um, they, they start by the bay with this, you know, sort of like all the people who are using public transportation and stuff like that. But the movement of the camera, the movement of the characters, it's just this like really compelling visual. And that's not even to say how compelling the plot is because you're, you know, you're kind of connected to these people who are being slowly alienated from, you know, what has become a place that's really not hospitable to um, to people who don't have enough money, right? Um, and so they're, you know, still still trying to find the place where they fit in. They find out that the house goes up for sale and try to see if they can buy it. And of course they can't because the amount of money that's wanted for the house is, you know, extraordinary. And then, you know, it goes into a lot of other interesting details about how people believe the history of where they are, hmm. how much of it might or might not be real. Uh, but it's just a beautifully made film. Uh, it was released um, in June. It premiered at Sundance in January of this year, and it won awards for Best Directing and a Special Jury Prize for Creative Collaboration. Um, and it's just something that's really worth checking out if you get a chance to see it. It's a, it's a, it, it's just a really compellingly made film. And when the movement stops at you know like about forty five minutes into it, and then it starts sort of settling into another storytelling mode. Um, then it starts being about how we perceive, how how a community perceives characters, African-American community, males especially. Um, and it, there's just an enormous amount to think about and to experience in terms of, you know, who's representing who, what kind of behavior is acceptable, what do different ways of behaving mean, how do people interact with each other. And, and, and it's, just a, it's just an incredibly cool film. And uh, Jimmy Falls was the uh, was one of the writers of it, and uh, it's actually a little autobiographical about him and his life. So, um, yeah, if you get a chance to see it, it's it's totally worth seeing. So put that on your list. Will do of things that you want to see. The thing that I've been watching recently <clears throat> is uh, a show called Alone. Yes, have you heard of this? I have not. It's uh, it's on. I want to say it's on the History Channel, but it's a uh, competitive reality show. Is as is most things I watch, <laughs> and they put these people out in the wilderness uh-huh. by themselves, and the person who stays out there the longest wins. Okay. And do they put them in like places that are difficult to stay in? Yeah. Oh, like yeah. this season, they're like uh, uh, like north north Canada. Uh, like close to North Pole, Canada, mm-hmm. way up there. Yeah. And um, so they're in Arctic climate. They're there for probably, I want to say like 40 days where it seems like before like winter really sets in, mm-hmm. but now it has and everything's frozen over. <laughs> and that just seems crazy. I mean, they're given nothing. Yeah. And it's not like a... I, not that I have watched too much of Naked and Afraid, but it's not like that. Yeah, it's you know these these are true. I mean these people. I don't, I'm sure the people on Naked and Afraid are, are just as good at this. These are like survivalists essentially, you mm-hmm. know. 
who feed off having these kind of opportunities. Mm-hmm. And that's just crazy. Here's the crazy thing. I love watching this show. The people, I mean, the, the, well, the interesting thing from a production standpoint is they're literally alone. Like they have to do all the filming of themselves. Holy, oh, okay. I get it now. Yeah. yeah. All like right. They're literally alone. Yeah. And, uh, they, there's like a, a medical team that I think comes and checks them like once a week and probably, right. uh, replaces their batteries and, you know, tapes or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's basically how it works. Yeah. I see that it's become kind of a template because there's a Danish version that started in 2017. Oh, really? And a Norwegian version that started in the fall of 2017. It's crazy. So, yeah. But it's just so interesting that I am finding myself enjoying watching people also be alone. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> it's got to be something about wanting to, you know, my my introverted time when I just want to sit by myself and watch television yeah. is watching other people be sit alone. by themselves. <laughs> yeah, there's something going on there. Yeah. It's definitely. Well, also because a lot of the rest of the, the material you talk about when we kind of venture into the reality right. television game show world is really kind of very kinetic yes. and there's a lot of people. It's social and, game. Yeah, yeah. It's social games. Yeah. 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 Yeah, this is not, but it's interesting, yeah. and I recommend checking it out. Okay. My I, favorite season is probably, I don't know which one it is, but there was one in Patagonia, which uh-huh. I thought was just it's beautiful, and uh, there's a great uh, cast of characters on that one, so mm-hmm. if you want to start somewhere. The first season, I, 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 don't, I don't feel like they really had figured out who, who the right people were, right? Um, because it always starts off with 10 people, and it's just like, you know... Last to last to be there wins a million dollars, and um, I want to say during like the first season, like four people quit in like two days. You know, like mm-hmm. they're like it just they were not there to they couldn't they couldn't hang. But now they have some people. I mean, they can. It's insane what they can do. Huh. They like making their own clothes and trapping animals and fishing and building their own house. It's it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, I, I'll put that on my list of things to check out. And I'm like, I'm like, I couldn't move to Minnesota. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't want to live somewhere where it's cold. Well, now the, uh, I did hear recently, and I don't know if you're aware of this. Nothing is going wrong on. with Minnesota. I'm sure Minneapolis right. is great. Yeah, no, but in the Arctic, they're actually having massive fires right now. Oh, interesting. It's uh, you know, Fairbanks hit 90 for the first time ever in history oh. this summer. And uh, they're having these, they've lost millions, they've had fires that covering millions of acres in the Arctic in places where you think this wouldn't happen, but it's happening. And part of the, you know, part of the challenge is that, um, that they were talking about on this piece on uh, public radio I was listening to was when this happens, you know, fire response is really geared toward human habitation. So if... Uh, if a fire happens somewhere where people's lives or property are in danger, then there's a lot of mobility to to work it out. But uh, if it's like, you know, in the wilderness, then you just sort of like try to make sure it doesn't start going into where people are. And otherwise, they just kind of let it go. And so it's resulted in the destruction of millions of acres um, in, in, in the Arctic. So... So there's that. Yeah. Which is you know, hard to survive. Another part of what's going on in that environment there. So yeah, one other thing that that I thought was worth mentioning since it did drop this past week is the TV series Mind Hunter. Oh, okay. And Mind Hunter, which I'm assuming you're not terribly familiar with. 
I feel like it doesn't seem like me. maybe it's your thing, but I think you talked about it before. Yeah. So it's it's kind of the history, questionably reliable history, of the work that was being done by the FBI Behavioral Sciences Unit, mm. um, and sort of how it developed as it started actually trying to investigate how serial killers operate and using that information to develop profiles so they could catch other serial killers, basically. Didn't, and then they like. They interviewed serial killers a they lot, did. right? Yes, that was their their main thing. Is they would interview yeah. serial killers and try to use that information so to develop pro- profiles for for future ones. So, so the second season is on now, and it's the, the focus has shifted just slightly, but it's still incredibly fascinating. Most of the serial killers that they're involved with are people that you've that you know even like. Charles Manson, not right. a word that really, yeah, I mean, that's, people kind of know that. And one of the interesting challenges in the show is how do you get um, an actor who's going to pull off, yeah. you know, a performance? And they do it over and over again in ways that are really compelling. Now, you know, Truth and Lending, it's, the show's got a brutal undertone to it. Um, and it isn't really all that physically grotesque, but in terms of the way things are talked about, it's pretty blunt. David Fincher mm. is responsible for it. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to mention is that four of the uh, episodes of this current season uh, were directed by Carl Franklin. And Carl Franklin is an amazing director that doesn't get nearly the attention that he should. Um, he's directed uh, a number of different films. The most notable to me uh, is Devil in a Blue Dress in 1995, which was um, uh, an, a phenomenal uh, mystery set in um, post-World War II uh, L.A. that Denzel Washington was in. Um, he also he made a film after that called One False Move. That's in, or I'm sorry, before that called One False Move. Uh, he also did High Crimes in 2002, Out of Time in 2003, and then now he's doing he's done four episodes for the season of Mindhunter. And he's a very compelling director. He one of the one of the marks of his work is that he was able to get these amazing performances out of actors in these you know genre pieces. But you know you really get them to pull off if you're able to find actors who are able to inhabit these characters. And in this series, all of the small parts are being performed by actors who are just phenomenal. Even when you know you're looking at a set piece where they're interviewing a serial killer and there's going to be one scene where this person is. So you're going to be out 15 minutes or something like that of this person and uh, and the performers are just are just really really great. The show has a very interesting visual style because this historical period was dominated uh, you remember the color palette of the mm-hmm. 1970s? It's dominated by olive green, mm-hmm. um, that kind of burnt orange. Yeah, brown and uh, mustard. Yeah, and, and I just in an episode I watched yesterday there was a coral. You remember yeah. when coral was plumbing yeah. fixtures were coral? <laughs> So it's got this really interesting, and of course, all the clothing, all the cars, everything else. It's really strange, and everybody is smoking all the time, everywhere, huh. on the planes, everywhere. So there's that kind of tangible feeling, too, that you're constantly in a room that's full yeah. of smoke. That's part of it, too. We, we watched, um, I think we talked about watching Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, mm-hmm. and it's similar in Zac Efron's performance, and that's pretty unreal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I haven't gotten quite up to watching that yet. Oh, you haven't? No. Oh. No, there's just too many. The buffet is too full. Yeah. <laughs> there's too much other stuff. So, so so what has this FBI unit like learned, you know? Like what how do, where do they start when they're thinking about how to profile future serial killers? Well, yeah, part of it is the patterns that are established early on yeah. in terms of socialization. Part of it is kind of finding commonalities in terms of family background. 
Um, and, and, and then, you know, sort of like what's the relationship between sexuality and violence in terms of what they're doing, you know, what, whatever particular little trail they happen to follow, um, you know, what are, what are the other social characteristics that make them, are they, you know, in a lot of cases they talk about that they're people who you just don't notice. They're around you, but you don't notice them because they don't draw attention to themselves. Yeah. And they're, and they're, you know, arguably were reasonably failed in a lot of things in their lives. They weren't, you know, extraordinarily successful um, at things. Um, and so this becomes a, you know, behavior pattern that's part of it. Um, so it's it's really interesting, and I, it, there's been, you know, people have thought that maybe the the profiling process has been like hyped up a little too much, right? Um, but you know, one of the one of the important things that's going on in the second season is the Atlanta child murders, and one of the interesting things that's going on in there is this was something that was happening in the African American community, and so it was something that where local police weren't necessarily investing the time and energy into it that they really should have. You know, even though there was some black political leadership in the city at the time. Um, so it's interesting to kind of see this historical period, too, and come to a you know, kind of a better understanding um, that in, you know, in some ways it's like we've never left it because the Black Lives Matter movement is really, you know, and, and Colin Kaepernick and all the things we're dealing with now that are still trying to figure out what what's what's the appropriate social response to, you know, to law enforcement and what it does and doesn't do in terms of, you know, diverse communities and things like that. But it's interesting to see it in the context of when some of it was, you know, pretty obviously, you know, you've got, you know, somewhere between 11 and 15 missing children under fairly similar circumstances and, you know, nobody's seeing connections between them yet. So, you know, so Can that, I make a uh, serial killer podcast recommendation? Sure. I've been listening to uh, The Clearing. Yes. Which is about Edward Wayne Edwards. You ever heard of him? I have not, not off the top of my head. Yeah, I think that's why this podcast is pretty interesting. He's not really a very well-known one. Mm-hmm. And his known killings, is, is it's only a few because he only admitted to a few and then he died pretty quickly. Um, but the podcast is sort of a journalist and Edward Wayne Edwards' daughter uh-huh. uh, trying to kind of go back and 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 relook at things. It's a really interesting mm-hmm. podcast. So Yeah. Yeah, there's a, the, the, add that to your your buffet. I, yeah, the buffet gets even bigger. One of the you know one of the things that's of course troubling about this that has become a, a significant figure in terms of the the mass shooter um, uh, media coverage of late is you know inevitably Mindhunter and this this podcast that you're talking about ends up celebritizing these right. you know, these deplorable awful people and there's a lot of podcasts that are interested in this kind of like true crime environment. And there's a there. I mean, there's a very legitimate concern people have for you know giving a lot of attention to people who are doing horrible things, and then the victims kind of get swept aside right. at the same time. Um, and it, it's interesting how in the the movement that's still going on the the Parkland movement, they're just very interested in trying to get the media to like not use the name of the person who's the perpetrator of the killing mm-hmm. because you know because that will then discourage other people who think it's a route to get themselves well known. So I think, you know, it's kind of this interesting thing, again, where media is looping into how people are thinking about what's going on, what behavioral choices they're making. Um, you know, the idea that we now have people who are regularly posting these manifestos right. before they go do something horrible. Um, and, you know, even though the manifestos are pretty clear about the sorts of things that are influencing them into making some really bad choices, 
it's not something that is politically that that that's, that seems to have any kind of political consequence yeah. yet. I guess the 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 thing I think about though too is to be honest, unless I'm just totally missing it, I didn't read much about the shooters in El Paso and Dayton. Mm-hmm. And my concern is almost that it's happening so often. It's normalized to a point where we, there's not even time to talk about that anymore, right? Yeah, there were. Well, I don't know. Were, were there big stories in who the sh- the shooters were? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's a, I mean, that's definitely a, a big problem right now is the normalization of all of this. There was a lot of complaining about uh, you know active shooter drills in schools were having the effect of normalizing school shootings, like you know it's something that happens, like right. you know like fires, and disaster, tornadoes, yeah. and yeah. school shooter. You know, it's all kind of in the same thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just, it's a difficult kind of thing to call because, you know, I don't think that not using the name is necessarily something that's been scientifically demonstrated to actually make a difference. Right. Right. Um, but you know, it's a, it's just a, it's a very complicated media environment where it's really hard to nail down those things. And yet we kind of, I think are often functioning as if those are already true. Like we would already know that, that that kind of publicity would encourage copycat yeah you know, i just think we were there was once upon a time you know where the question the big question was well who's what kind of person could do this kind of thing that was sort of the question that everyone wanted to answer right. with knowing more about it yeah. and i feel like we don't even care about that anymore. well i think i actually think that that's why these the, that podcast and mind hunter and things like that exist i think because i think they're still interested in trying to understand how we come to understand yeah. people who are capable of doing these things you know, and there's some real challenges involved in that because you have to, if, if your general question is what makes people capable of doing, of committing atrocities, then you have to go from these sort of like individual cases all the way up to, you know, uh, political acts of genocide and really complicated, very large scale, uh, just horrific treatment of one group of people by another that's, you know, happening in Syria as we speak and happening in a number of other places in the world. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it, it almost feels like we're frustratingly ignorant of what it is that allows that sort of thing to happen. You know, what is it that changes people from, you know, being around someone they don't know and not trusting them to functioning with them in such a way that they're that they're developing some kind of rapport, trust, working in the same direction kind of thing, rather than being afraid that that person you don't know in the room with you represents competition and a threat and therefore shouldn't be trusted, you know. And that's the whole kind of self-other construction that, that you know, hopefully the, that the, the culture we're living in right now that has a lot of activity going on about who's us and who's them, that that's something that could be asked. You can ask a really serious question about, you know, what, what counts as, a, um, as somebody who deserves to be part of us, mm-hmm. right? What are, the, what are the qualifications and what is it that makes somebody a them? Right, that we want to say they're not part of us. We bear no responsibility for them. This was part of that whole thing about the argument about what the poem on the Statue of Liberty meant, sure. which was, you know, to me, just like an astounding misrepresentation of what something's meant for decades. And then all of a sudden it's sort of like, well, no, it's subtextually. It's suggesting people who can take care of themselves and stand on their own two feet and everything. And there's, you know, that's just completely made up and attached on for political expediency. And that's, you know, it's troubling is like 
it's fine. If that's your opinion, that's great. Argue it, but don't make stuff up sure. to argue it. You know, argue it on its own merits. And, you know, and, and then you have to let the argument that traditionally has existed about what immigration and the Statue of Liberty meant, you know, on its own, too. And then you weigh the argument. So I'm sorry, I went off on a little yeah, tangent fine. there about uh, that. Last couple minutes, parting mm-hmm. thoughts. Um, well, I was I, one thing I wanted to mention before we go away too much. There are some really interesting articles in the September issue of Scientific American about misinformation and disinformation, and they'd be really worth uh, taking a look at. They can be found online pretty easily. Um, there is one article that is titled "Everyone Is an Agent in the New Information Warfare." Before you click like, hit pause, which I think would probably follow from the my coffee. Field, you know, kind mm-hmm. of approach to stuff that we've talked before, which you can find on a previous episode of this podcast if you're interested. And then an article by Claire Wardle called Misinformation Has Created a New World Disorder. Our willingness to share content without thinking is exploited to spread disinformation. And what it, one of the things that it does is trace how something moves from being disinformation to being misinformation. And it's a little it's a little complicated and nuanced, but definitely worth thinking about, you know, so that we're we're taking responsibility for per, per, perpetrating, perpetuating, <laughs> repeating things that maybe we don't completely know and being aware of how our actions play a role in that. Interesting. Good so stuff. That's where we are. Yeah. All right. So is this the way of the world? Will we be here next week? <laughs> Tune in so next the question, week to find right? out. See if we're still here. Yeah. No, the possibilities uh, are always there, and um, you, you just never know what's going to happen from one of these instances to we'll the next. We'll try to be optimistic. We will try to be optimistic. I actually have gotten lessons from people who are very important to me about trying to be more optimistic, mm. but we'll see. <laughs> All right. We'll see. Take it easy. All right. Thanks. <laughs>